During the Reagan presidency, there was a Sunday morning terrorist bombing of the Marine barracks in Beirut in the 1980s. Hundreds of Americans were killed or wounded as they slept, and terrible scenes began to emerge on the news as days survivors worked to dig out their trapped Marine brothers from underneath that rubble. But a few days after that tragedy, some extraordinary stories began to come out. There was a Marine Corps commander, Paul Kelly, who was visiting some of the wounded survivors in a Frankfurt, Germany hospital. And among them was Corporal Jeffrey Lee Nashton. He was severely wounded in the incident. Nashton had so many tubes uh, running in and out of his body that a witness said he looked more like a machine than a man, yet he had survived that terrorist attack from Hezbollah. And as Commander Kelly neared him, Nashton struggled to move, and his body was racked with pain, and he motioned for a paper and a pen. And he wrote a brief note, and he passed it back to the commander, Commander Kelly. And on that slip of paper were written two words, Semper Fi, a Latin motto of the Marines, meaning faithful forever, forever faithful. And with those two simple words, he spoke for millions of Americans who have sacrificed body and limb and lives for their country, those who have remained faithful. And as we come near the end of Hebrews chapter 11, I believe we can see the marks of being Semper Fi, of being forever faithful in the forces of the Lord. We're on the fifth message in this series on Hebrews 11 to 12 called Faith is Greater Than Fear. And I want to talk to you this morning about dying well. I don't mean to be morbid, but I do mean to be real and truthful. We don't like to think about it, but followers of Jesus absolutely should. We will all die if the Lord tarries and does not return during our lifetimes. And if you return today, or if your life ended today, would you be found faithful? I believe this passage answers the question of what faithful means. Being faithful unto death, and if we want to leave this planet when our lives end and leave it well, means we need to look back at those who have gone on before us in order to understand what it means to die well. And understand this truth, we will die well if we live well. Remember what the author wants to see produced in these disciples' lives. In chapter 6 of Hebrews, he said very clearly... And verse 11, we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In the previous chapter of Hebrews 11, chapter 10, the writer has told uh, the believers there, In verse 32, But call to remembrance the former days, in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly while ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while ye became companions of them that were so used. 
For ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. It's what he... It's what the whole point of Hebrews 11 is driving to in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 where he says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. That's what the writer of Hebrews wants to see produced in the lives of these people he's writing to. That's the goal. So in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32, this last section, he starts to list some people and then he just gets into no names. He lists some of the familiar heroes of the faith uh, from the book of Judges. Uh, Howard Wiley is going to be teaching the book of Judges next week. And, and you're going to probably, if you're in that particular class, you're going to come upon some of these names. Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. And then after the book of Judges uh, and Ruth comes a book called First Samuel, and, and, you, and you read about Samuel's life, and David's role to the, to the throne, and, 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 and then later on it branches out through the prophets, Elijah and Elisha and others after him. And in verse 33, he describes the faith that enabled them to do amazing things. He says, subdue kingdoms. You think of the judges in the book of Judges. I'm assuming a little Bible knowledge here this morning. But uh, there were men who were raised up after uh, Israel had fallen into disobedience. God allowed other pagan powers, other heathen nations to take over Israel and, uh, and put them into servitude to them. But God raised up judges, uh, men who would, or would be leaders of Israel during that time after Israel repented to fight back and push back some of these kingdoms. Gideon was one of them. He says, who through faith subdued kingdoms, Walk, wrought, wrought, or worked righteousness. Uh, you think some of the kings of Israel who had revivals and, and rooted out the idolatry in the land, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. And of course, we've got to think of Daniel in that one. Uh, where, where Daniel, ministering in a pagan government, was faithful, and he stood for what was right, and he was thrown to the lion's den to be devoured by lions, and God sent an angel to shut the lion's mouth, stop the mouths of lions. Others, in verse 34, quench the violence of fire. You might think of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, who were thrown into the fire for not bowing down to the idol of their day. They stood firm, and the, and the, uh, the, the king of, of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, threw them into the fire. And they didn't burn up. And in that furnace, people began to notice that there was a fourth person who was standing with them. One who was like the son of the gods, they said. Quench the violence of fire, escape the edge of the sword. Out of weaknesses were made strong, waxed valiant, grew valiant in fight. Turn to flight the armies of the aliens or the foreigners. Think of Gideon. And Gideon takes 300 men. And God confuses the armies of the Midianites that he says are all over the valley like grasshoppers. 
in a plague. And they end up running off from 300 men. Verse 35, women receive their dead raised to life again. Two specific instances in the Old Testament were Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, whose son died. And Elijah, uh, by God's power, raised the son back to life again. And he lived. And Elisha, with a Shunammite woman, her son that God gave her as a gift died, and Elisha raised him from life again. But then look how this tone changes. You see, all those people who were listed before had great victories, and were saw deliverance in his physical life. But in verse 35 it says, And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they may obtain a better resurrection. You see, those mothers who had their boys raised uh, from the dead by Elijah and Elisha, those boys died again later on. But those who were tortured, not accepting deliverance for their faith, knew that they would obtain a better resurrection than just coming to life again so they could die again. And what he's probably referring to is a there's a, a section of Jewish writings that used to be part of the the, the, uh, the, uh, the Anglican well the Anglican Church sees them as part of Scripture and they're part of the King James translation was originally translated called the Apocrypha and there was a book called Maccabees and what it was was a history of of, of Israel in between the Old Testament and the New Testament when the Greeks came and conquered uh, um, um, uh, Israel. And uh, they forced them to, to worship their, their, their pagan deities, the pagan Greek deities. And there were some Jews, one in particular, a 90-year-old man named Eliezer, who said, No, I will not. And they took him, and the word that's used for tortured here in verse 35 is, is, is a word um, where we get the word timpani, timpani drum. And they stretched him over this round drum, and they beat him to death. And they beat seven brothers and, and their mother to death because they would not bow. They would not turn to the demands of the pagans' worship. They did not accept deliverance. They recognized the future resurrection. Others, in verse 36, had trials of cruel mockings and scourgings, bonds or chains and imprisonment. Some were stoned. Some were sawn asunder. Tradition says that Isaiah was cut in half. They were tempted. They were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, which was not a nice... uh, 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 Let's just say that wasn't something that came down the fashion line in Paris. Destitute, afflicted, tormented. People who the world says was not worthy of living on this earth and needed to be wiped out. And and the writer of Hebrews says, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having attained a good report through faith, and that's what he's pointing out to us. He has said in Hebrews chapter 11, And verse 2, for by it the elders, the ancients, by faith, obtained a good report. So they obtained a good report, 39 says, received not the promise. They never saw the Messiah. They never saw the promises of God made to Abraham fully fulfilled in Jesus. 
Why? God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Here's what I want us to see here this morning from the passage. Point number one. Is that true faith exchanges weaknesses, weakness for God's strength. It exchanges weakness for God's strength. All these people were weak human beings. They were flesh and blood like you and me. They woke up, they had desires, they had wants, they had needs. But they exchanged the weaknesses of their own flesh for God's strength. In fact, he says that um, pretty clearly here in verse 34. He says, out of weakness were made strong. And friends, it is not until you realize how weak you are without the power of God that you exercise faith. Why do we need to exercise faith in a powerful God if I think I can take care of everything? If I'm a control freak? If I got it all under wraps? But when we surrender that fear, and we place our lives in the hands of God, faith exchanges weakness for strength. You see, we can believe a lie that says our independence... Our abilities, our skills can get us through all of life. And we can quickly come face to face with the limitations of that, can't we? These people, I'm sure, had very many limitations. They were flesh and blood like you. When James talks about Elijah and tells us how we should pray like Elijah, he says, and don't forget that Elijah was a man of like passions like you. In other words... He was a human being who wrestled with the very same things. And faith exchanges weakness for strength. Do you remember Paul in 2 Corinthians 12? Where he has this weakness that he calls a thorn in his flesh. And he prays that God removes it from him. And he prays three times. And God does not remove whatever this weakness was. But instead, God helped him see what this weakness was for. And it's very clear that this weakness is is so that Paul understands that he is strong in God's power. That, That when he is weak, then the power of Christ rests upon him, flows through him, and he can be strong. And therefore, when difficult circumstances come, that he lists as infirmities, as reproaches, as necessities, as persecutions, as distresses, then he can say, for the glory of Christ, when I am weak, then I am strong. Faith is an exchange of weakness for God's strength. Secondly, faith trusts in a God who reserves the right to do as He pleases. Do you notice in all these cases the outcomes are all different? Daniel, we love that story, don't we? He was saved from the lion's den. What about those in the Roman Colosseum sacrificed to the lions? Who weren't rescued from that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, rescued from the fiery furnace. What about those who are used as human torches in Nero's garden? Women who received their dead raised to life again. What about those whose sons were martyred for the faith? What about Stephen's mother? What about James's mother? What about Jesus' mother? Stories where the enemies of God were turned away. 
in stories where the Roman emperor marched on Israel and committed horrible atrocities. Stories where some were rescued and and spared from, from cruel trials and mockings and bondage, and some in verse 36 who were not. Some were spared from stoning and martyrdom, and some were sawed in half. We need to be very careful that we do not hold in our theology a light version of the prosperity gospel that says, if I do this and this, God's going to bless me physically on this level. If I do this and this and this, then um, uh, that means that uh, I'm going to have a good salary, um, I'm going to have good health, I'm going to have this provided for me, because God owes it to me. And that's what the prosperity gospel says. God owes me anything. Do you know what the Bible says in Psalm 115, verse 1? It says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And if we believe that we serve a God who is all-wise, that means there is nothing in our minds that can concoct a better plan than He already has for your life. And that may include suffering and trials. Faith is in a God who reserves the right to do as He pleases. Faith doesn't say, yeah, I'm going to do that because that might mean that I, that I receive this blessing on earth. You may, you may not. But you do right because it's right. Because it glorifies God. And you leave God with the, with the um, uh, parameters of the outcome. Perhaps it's facing an illness of cancer. One out of every four of us will die of cancer, statistically. One out of every four of us will die of heart disease. So two out of four of us will die from heart disease or cancer. And four out of four of us will die, right? (laughs) The Lord tarries. You see, God doesn't work at our timetable. He doesn't work in our ways. His ways are far above us. He doesn't work in our plans that we've laid out and sketched out in our bullet points. And He does not work out our outcome. He has a diverse way of dealing with things. And if you think you figured out how God works, then you don't know the God of the Bible. Because He'll keep you guessing. Because His ways are past finding out. And He doesn't do it so He can just yank away the bane every time and you know, make, make life miserable for us. He does it because He's God. And he does it because he reserves the right to do that because he's the one who laid the foundations of this earth. In fact, that's what he says to Job. And in verses 33 and 34, you're going to see that they're, they're arranged. things are arranged in three groups of three. There's a common feature that links them together. There's the, the, there's the first group in verse 33. He has attainments that were done, um, things that were accomplished, uh, conquering kingdoms, establishing righteousness, inheriting some, some promises. And then there's another group of three with a uh, list of specific kinds of endurance and deliverance. And then there's another group of three that talks about uh, marvelous deliverance and more positive achievements. And then what follows in those next three verses, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, in those next verses, is a series of examples of outcomes that were not good. That were not what I would like to sign up for. 
What's common in all these things? Daniel, who was delivered from the lion's den, and Isaiah, who was sawed in half. You know what's in common? Faith. Different outcomes. Faith. Different outcomes in this life. Same outcome in the next. And that's his point. And that's his point. Uh, uh, Fear can be an idol that gives you the illusion of control. And it is deconstructing faith the whole time. It gives you the illusion of control. Do you believe God has a better plan than you do? Do you believe He's wiser than you are? Do you believe then what He has ordained in your life is better than anything you could ever come up with? That's easy to nod our heads to, isn't it? It's hard to put it in action, but that's why it's faith. That's why it's faith. You see, God doesn't just... He's very involved. He's very involved. And whatever He's given to us is not something to just... Okay, I'll be thankful in this. But it's to turn our hearts to God and say, God, you know what's best. Because you are the source of all that is good, and this good means me being conformed to the image of Christ, then I can say thank you. It takes a life that's entrenched in faith to say thank you, even though you don't feel like it. So faith, trust in the God who reserves the right to do as He pleases. You might have a different outcome. There might be people who might be delivered from cancer. And there might be five others who die from cancer. There's something else that's interesting about this passage. All these people, if you really look at them, are pretty ordinary. You might say, well, look at the things they accomplished. A Daniel, a David... You know what? Where did David come from? He was the last son of a family of shepherds, right? He's the one nobody thought would be legitimate. Daniel, he was a captive boy. You see, faith comes from ordinary men and women, and these others here, after after the names, the, the couple names listed in verse 32, the others in the rest of the chapter, there's no more names there. They're not written down in the Bible. There are a few names here. There's a, there's a baseball uh, player named Clint Courtney. And you'll never find his name in the Cooperstown Baseball Hall of Fame. You won't find his name there. In fact, it's, if you found a baseball card, I don't know that you could find a baseball card of him that appeared in any uh, baseball bubblegum cards. He wasn't even a legend in his own time, not even in his own mind. He only made memories for his family and a few diehard fans because of his fortitude. His fortitude. He played for the Baltimore Orioles in the 1950s, and he earned the nickname of Scrap Iron. Implying that he was hard, he was weathered, and he was tough. And he broke no baseball records. He only broke bones. Uh, He had little power or speed on the base pass. 
And he had very little grace and style. He made easy plays look pretty difficult. And he had a he had a mitt and he had a mask, and he never flinched from any challenge. That's what made him different. Behind the batters is a catcher. Batters would miss and they would catch his shin. Foul tips from the bats would nip his elbow. Runners would plow into him, running from third to home. Spikes first as he defended home plate when that was legal. He would be in agony many times in pain, flattened in a heap of dust. But what was unique about Clint Courtney is that Clint never quit. Every time he'd slowly get up, He'd shake off the dust, he'd punch the pocket of his mitt once, twice, and then he'd nod to the pitcher to throw another pitch. The game would go on, and Clint Courtney would go with it. He'd be scarred, he would be bruising, he would be clutching his arm in pain, but he was determined to continue. Somebody said he resembled a POW with tape, splints, braces, and other kinds of paraphernalia that wounded people wear. Some made fun of him because he got hurt all the time, but he worked through it and said he must enjoy pain. But others remember him as a true champion because no matter what, he pushed through it. He pushed through it. An illustration here of an ordinary guy with an extraordinary drive. There is a Christian... Evangelist who was asked a few years ago a question that you can see come out of our Christian celebrity culture. Who is the greatest Christian alive today? And the person posed that question thinking that he would say, well, you know, it's it's Billy Graham or it's this particular name or it's this particular name or well-known name. And the answer was, he gave was, it's probably a Christian woman living in obscurity in Pakistan. Faithful to Jesus in her Islamic village. Who knows? Or maybe it's someone here in Maine who's going through some serious hard times and are having their faith and allegiance tested to Jesus, but they're coming forth like gold. Maybe it's an individual who, as we talked about in Sunday school, has fighting against uh, uh, fighting for purity in, in their lives. And it said no to temptations and put their focus on Jesus Christ no matter how hard the temptations are. Maybe it's somebody in this room. But that question, who's the greatest Christian alive, is the wrong question, isn't it? Because that's not the question Hebrews 11 answers. Hebrews 11 answers, what pleases God? And the answer is, faith. And what is faith? It's a faith that in this chapter obeys, and it doesn't quit. It's active, and it gets back up, and it presses on. Spurgeon said, by perseverance, the snail reads the ark. See, God, and all these people that are listed here, from Abel... All the way down to that intertestamental time, Eliezer, on the torture drum. God forgets none of His children. Every faithful child who trusts in Him will be welcomed and rewarded. Because faith sees what was promised and believes in the eternal reward. And that's the whole point in verse 39. 
These all, having obtained a good report, through faith received not the promise. They never saw the Messiah. They did not have what the the audience in the book of Hebrews had, that Jesus Christ, who had come, they had to look forward to it. They had to, like Moses, uh, choose to suffer affliction with the people of God to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. Uh, seeing the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Endure seeing Him who is invisible. Like others, like Abraham, who fixed his eyes on a heavenly city. Like others who went through life as sojourning in a, as, as strangers and pilgrims in this world. God uses ordinary people. Do you know, faith sees what's promised, that I can't see with my physical eyes, and believes in an eternal reward. Back when we used to call bums hobos, and they go from train to train, or go from city to city, And we dressed up, you know, as hobos for Halloween or whatever. You know, there's a big difference between a hobo and a pilgrim. Hobo just kind of mills around and goes wherever, right? A pilgrim is on a pilgrimage. Which means they're on a journey. Which means they have purpose. Which means there is a destination that they intend to arrive at. And Christians, we cannot drift like a hobo. We need to have a pilgrim mentality. We need to set our eyes in an eternal city and what will get us there in the meantime. God forgets none of His children. These were ordinary men and women that He loved very dearly. Just like you. And finally here. Those ones who didn't see the see resurrection in this life looked for a better resurrection. Remember we said the outcomes were very different? Here's what they all have in common. They all found their reward in Jesus. Even those Old Testament saints are looking at. Look at verse 40. When he says these people from Abel all the way up through didn't receive the promise, the promise that God made to Abraham of a descendant who would bless the nations. Verse 40 says this, God, having provided some better thing for us, that they, now who's they? Everybody's talked about, right? Without us should not be made perfect. Now it's a little confusing because it's a double negative here. Here's what it means. Verse 30 means this. Or 40 means this. Only together with us would all these people that are listed be made complete. What does he mean by that? Is that the faithful from Abel to the Maccabean martyrs are made complete in Christ. They look forward to Christ. We look back to Christ. They share the same access to God. 
And here the writer of Hebrews, instead of separating the Old Testament and New Testament, shows what is actually in common here. And it's Jesus. As they look forward to Jesus, we look back to what was written about Jesus and what He came. And you know what we share? Jesus. Jesus. Looking forward to Messiah, looking back to a Messiah here. So what this passage tells us is that we stand in solidarity with Jesus and His people. We have become the recipients of the promise made to Abraham of one descendant who would be a blessing to the nations. In other words, Christ completes this all. There is no completion without Jesus. Go with me to chapter 8. That's been his argument all along. The insufficiencies of the the old covenant are Moses. And in chapter 8, verse 6 and 7, he says, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Jesus coming in chapter 2 verse 10 brings many sons to glory. In chapter 10 and verse 14, the writer says, For by one offering he hath perfected or made complete forever them that are sanctified. He makes the complete. And it's through Jesus that Old Testament and New Testament believers are made complete. And one day in eternity, in the city of God, and the new heavens and the new earth, it will be one people, won't it? It is through Jesus that the Old Testament and the New Testament believers are made complete. The Old Testament believers didn't see that until they entered eternity, did they? New Testament believers were made complete in Christ, aren't we? Old Testament believers didn't experience this completion until their earthly lives were ended. But New Testament believers have had God speak in finality through His Son. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And Jesus completes the believer. Because in chapter 12, and verse 2, it says, Looking into Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. The beginning... And the end of our faith. One of the early reformers in the 1500s said this about these Old Testament saints. He said, A small spark light led them to heaven. When the sun of righteousness shines over us, with what pretense can we excuse ourselves if we still cleave to the earth? They had a little bit of revelation, didn't they, these Old Testament believers? They didn't have the the full canon, did they? We have the full canon of Scripture. We have revelation. We know how it ends, don't we? We have Paul's letters. We know know, uh, what it is to be the church. We have the Gospels that tells us who Jesus is and why He came and what that means. And it was enough for them to believe the little that God had revealed to them to get them to the heavenly city. Is what we have enough for the Holy Spirit dwelling in us permanently? No. This is point 
the Greeks had a race in the Olympic Games that was unique. And the winner was not the runner who finished first in that race. The winner was the runner who had been given a torch at the beginning, who finished the race and his torch was still lit. Going through rivers, going up mountains, etc., And this passage should give us a yearning in our hearts to want to run all the way with the flame of our torch still lit for Jesus. Let's pray.